And we've looked at Jesus' parables about living in the kingdom, but we need to address the question, what is the kingdom? Where is the kingdom? When is the kingdom? Uh, Before we do that, though, I wanted to call your attention to the ministry of Albert Muller. He's the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, which uh, is the flagship seminary of our denomination. It's in Louisville, Kentucky. Really, Dr. Muller's become the figurehead of our convention. He's not the president of the convention. I can't tell you who the president of the convention is. I could look it up right now. You could look it up too. But when the press wants um, an answer from the Southern Baptist Convention, the largest denomination in the U.S., they go to Dr. Albert Moeller. Uh, he's an amazingly gifted man, uh, but a humble man, well-read. He has a podcast every morning called The Briefing, where he hits all the major newspapers and all the major stories in the morning and helps you digest those stories in a biblical way, to, to think biblically about the world we live in. He also has a podcast called, I think, Thinking in Public. He'll interview um, leading figures in our country, interview them, and have a good biblical dialogue, even if they're not Christians. Because Dr. Muller wants the Southern Baptist Convention, and we agree, to be thinking people. We have answers to the world's questions. And yes, the answer is Jesus, but how that works out in our lives um, is going to take some thinking. And we have the Bible, we have the Holy Spirit, and it is part of making disciples, teaching people how to think biblically. So avail yourself of that ministry. Go on albertmuller.com. You can download his app. My wife listens to the briefing every morning while she's getting ready, so that's kind of in the background uh, playing. Uh, that way I don't have to subscribe to the Washington Post and, and New York Times and, uh, and, and be depressed reading through, through all of that. We'll just let Dr. Moeller let us know what is going on. Recently, uh, he was at my alma mater, uh, UCLA, and uh, doing a Q&A. Students could just come, ask him any question they wanted to ask. It was videoed. It's on his website you should check it out. My family, we, we listened to a couple of the answers to his questions last night and then hit pause and talked about them as a family. And I would love for you to check that out because the, the way that he graciously listens to questions, even from people who are hostile to Christianity, and is able to, to give an answer in a way that is respectful, winsome, but grounded in biblical truth, and no apologies for our beliefs in Christ. These are the ways we're going to have to engage our culture, and Dr. Muller's leading the way. So, I'm also wearing my blue and gold because UCLA beat SC. Not that that's important, but I know for a couple people in here, I just wanted to make sure you knew that (laughs) maybe you beat our football team, but the basketball team won. Now let's get to what's really important. Let's get to the Word of God. Luke chapter 17, two verses to introduce this series, verses uh, 20 and 21. Now, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, 
Nor will they say, well, look, here it is, or there it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Or your Bible might say the kingdom of God is among you, or your Bible might say the kingdom of God is in you, or your Bible may say that the kingdom of God is inside of you. Or your Bible might have a footnote and lots to say down in the margin at the bottom. So there must be a a lot of uh, disagreement over such a small phrase. Such a small phrase. What what does that phrase mean? Well, in the Greek, it's it's entos, humon. It's only used one other time in the New Testament. And it's when Jesus says, you clean the inside of the cup. Uh, Entos, inside. And... A lady came up to me, uh, uh, one of our members after first service, she said, well, my study Bible says it can't possibly mean inside of you. I said, okay, well, what study Bible do you have? Oh, it's a Ryrie study Bible. They're dispensationalists. Of course, they don't want the kingdom to be inside of you because they teach a literal physical kingdom is coming. But if Jesus says the kingdom's inside of you, that doesn't mean that there isn't part of the kingdom that's also outside of you. And that's what we'll talk about this morning the kingdom why the kingdom why is this so important when theologians talk about what is the major theme of the bible what what holds the whole bible together what is the framework that supports the story of the bible uh, they start talking about uh, very few concepts to choose from. Uh, We have a saying that there's not many men left in the room at at the party once they all start talking. It it boils down to uh, maybe the whole Bible is about love. And if you tend to be more liberal in your theology, that's what you say the Bible's all about love. And then you filter everything through that lens. The problem with that is we'll define love on our own and then Parts of the Bible that don't seem loving to us, we'll say, well, it can't possibly mean that because the Bible's all about love and that's not very loving. And that's often how you go down the road of theological liberalism. Well, there's a whole bunch of judgment and there's hell and there's, you know, that doesn't seem loving. Others will say the whole Bible's about redemption and certainly that is a major theme. Everything gets broke by the third chapter and don't get fixed again until the last two chapters. So the whole story really is a redemptive story, but if there's no kingdom, then there's no rebellion. If there's no rebellion, then there's no redemption. If there's no rebellion, there's no great act of love on the cross. So a lot of theologians say that the main theme of the Bible is kingdom, is kingdom. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He was already king before he created everything. And then when he created everything, that was under his domain. And then he creates man and woman in his image and tells them what? To go love, to go redeem, to go... No, he says... To have dominion over the earth. The problem is man and woman wanted to have dominion on their own. 
And we've inherited that tendency. That is our sin nature. That we want the benefits of the kingdom without the king. And even as Western Democrat society, democratic society, where we don't understand really what a kingdom is, we don't understand the concept of, hey, when the king says you do this, you do this. When the king says we are going to war, you drop everything and you go to war. When the king says I need these resources of yours, you can't put up a fight. We, we, we want limited government. We want choice. We want to decide what rules we'll follow and what rules we won't follow. But this was Adam and Eve. This was our first parents. They wanted kingdom without the king. They ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil so they could be their own kings, as it were. They could have been kings and queens. They could have been vice regents with God as the sovereign. But they wanted to rule apart from God just as Satan wanted to rule apart from God and tempted man and woman into rebellion. So now the grand story of redemption takes place. And a loving God, a loving God displays his love and mercy on the cross where he also, though, displayed his justice and his wrath. So love is an aspect of God, its character, and it motivates him to act, but it is not the major framework for the Bible. Redemption is important. We're redeemed people. We preach a gospel of redemption, but without a kingdom, there'd be no fall. Without the fall, there'd be no need for redemption. And so many theologians agree that kingdom is the main theme of the Bible. Dr. Eugene Merrill, distinguished professor of Old Testament at Dallas Theological Seminary and distinguished professor of Old Testament at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, which just blows my mind that a dispensational school and a covenantal school would ask the same guy to teach. That ought to tell you something. That there's something bigger than these artificial frameworks that we put over the Bible. And if those terms don't mean anything to you, that's okay. We, you, you, could, you could find out about dispensationalism and covenantalism later. If they mean so much to you that you're waiting for me to say which one I am so you can decide whether you're going to get up and leave, you've got problems, my friend. <laughs> These are not things that should break fellowship These are not concepts that should break fellowship. If I get up here and say, you can get into heaven by works, you should get up and leave. Or pick me up and throw me out and and get Andy or Nathan and and continue. That is something to break fellowship over. So what I'll be teaching today, I'll make sure I major on the majors, but I do want you to be aware of some of the minor doctrines associated with the kingdom. And that's why it'll be a series. We can't possibly cover it all in one sermon. Eugene Merrill wrote 
his um, magnum opus, his greatest work at the end of his career, and he decided, I'm going to attempt to write a biblical theology of the whole Bible, and he titled it Everlasting Dominion. This is the theme that holds the whole Bible together, kingdom. Everlasting dominion is that phrase taken from the Davidic covenant that God promised David that his kingdom would be an everlasting kingdom and a king would sit on the throne of David forever. And we understand that king is Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. He reigns even now. All Christians affirm that Jesus will return and reign. There's difference of opinions over what the physical, literal kingdom will look like. It's important that we understand this because we are people of a book. We want to understand what God has done, what he is doing, where he is going. And it all centers around kingdom. Raise your hand if you attended the marriage conference over the weekend. Good, lots of hands. Wonderful conference. Thank you to Pastor Craig for setting that up and all of his helpers. What an amazing event that was. Um, I'm looking forward to more of such events that we can just knock out Friday night, Saturday morning. What a, what a perfect... Um, that was just like just the right amount of time. There was child care. There was good fellowship. Um, God held back the weather just enough so we could... We could do it. And uh, Dr. Uh, Tripp was talking about kingdom, like in a marriage conference. You're like, well, what does kingdom have to do with a marriage conference? And he's like, it has everything to do with marriage. He created them, male and female, he created them to be one flesh and to have dominion together. And the problem is the man wants to have his little kingdom of one and the woman wants to have her little kingdom of one and all of our children want to have their little kingdoms of one. And this is this, this rebellion. We want the benefits of the kingdom without the king. Unless the king's me. Right? And so our, our children are eager to leave the home because they want to set up their own kingdom. And then they find out how hard it is to set up a kingdom. And um, they, they want you to pay for their car and their car insurance and their health insurance. And, you know. But they want to set up their kingdom. They want to be autonomous. But we're all like that, just on a grand scale. We want to live in the kingdom. We want the benefits of the kingdom. But we don't want to bend the knee to the king. And as he pointed out in the conference, it's a trust issue. It's all about trust. Do you trust the king to be king? So I trust myself to be king. Everything's a mess, though. We mess everything up. Why do we trust ourselves to be king? Everything's a mess. Because we blame everyone else but ourselves for the mess. And ultimately, in our fallenness, we end up blaming God for the mess. And this is why we need a Savior. So let's get into the text here and talk about what is a kingdom. What is the kingdom of God? The Pharisees wanted to know um, when the kingdom of God was coming. And so you might be thinking, well, we should skip to the second question, when is the kingdom coming? But 
The answer to that question starts with, well, what is the kingdom? Remember, the Pharisees at this time, based on Old Testament prophecy and the general teaching of the day, was that a kingdom was coming, a literal, physical kingdom. Messiah would come. He would overthrow Rome. He would set up a throne. It would be a geopolitical kingdom. It would be a time where Israel would be the top dog again and there would be peace and prosperity for all and all the other nations would bow to this kingdom. And they weren't wrong. They just were forgetting a whole other aspect of the kingdom. And so Jesus has to correct their poor theology as he's been doing all along. And he said to them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. So he's saying, look, don't, don't look for uh, you know, a big army coming. Don't, don't look for a big announcement. People aren't going to say, oh, oh, here it is. Here's the kingdom. And they're not going to say, oh, look, there it is over there. And then this very cryptic statement, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst or, or within you. And boy, uh, the commentators, pages and pages, gallons of ink spilt on one little preposition, entos. Is it inside of you? Is it within you? Is it among you? Is it in the midst of you? And you understand why this is such an important question because if it's inside of you, then he's talking about in your heart that the kingdom of God is in your heart. And so some theologians will say he can't possibly mean that because he's talking to Pharisees and we know the kingdom was not in them. But the pronoun you doesn't have to mean them specifically. Jesus could just be saying, hey, the kingdom of God is in you. Like, generally, it's inside of people. So that's one possible interpretation, and uh, I lean towards that interpretation. He could be saying, though, that the kingdom of God is among you, meaning... Uh, it's, it's starting right now, and look, here's the king. I'm in your midst. The kingdom is in your midst, and you're missing it. And that, that is another possible interpretation. I kind of lean towards that one, too. <laughs> I'm hedging my bets here. But because it's a both and. Is not the kingdom inside of us the spiritual part of the kingdom? And is not God setting up a physical kingdom as well. So possibly Jesus chose in his omniscience a phrase that would work in different ways. Now I was trained at my seminary never to run towards that interpretation. That's the coward's way out. But if the After lots of study and lots of prayer and lots more study and lots more prayer, you're starting to come to the conclusion that 
The reason that there's two very strong camps who believe very solidly that this is what it means is maybe they're both kind of right. Maybe they're both kind of right. My Greek professor would fail me right now. Uh, (laughs) Sorry, Dr. Farnell. The Bible uses the term kingdom in three different ways. This is from uh, George Alden Ladd. Um, He's gone to be with the Lord. Very influential teacher on the kingdom. Some passages refer to the kingdom of God as God's sovereign rule over all creation. Okay? Some passages just, just say kingdom is talking about, in general, that God reigns. It's not talking about an actual kingdom or a group of people or a place. We talk about Disneyland is what? The magic kingdom. That's a place. And so we think kingdom, we think place filled with people. And if it's Disneyland, it's lots of people, too many people. But oftentimes the Bible speaks of kingdom just as a euphemism for God's reign, God's kingdom. It also uses the word kingdom to talk about this um, spiritual realm into which we can now enter into by faith to experience the blessings of God's reign. And so, I'm in the kingdom right now by faith in Jesus Christ. And if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're in this kingdom. Now, if you're not in this kingdom, God is still ruling over you. Even if you choose to not be in the kingdom, God is still reigning over you. You are in another kingdom, though, the kingdom of darkness. And we implore you this morning, come to the light, the kingdom of light. Put your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Be in the kingdom. Bow your knee willingly, because one day every knee will bow whether in heaven or in hell. God reigns. Allow him to reign over you. He's a good king. He's a good king. And some passages refer to a future realm which will only come at Christ's return into which we will enter the fullness of his reign the spiritual aspect and the physical aspect will come together. And that is going to be awesome. And that word is so overused, but I am using it in the correct context. That is going to be awesome, people. It is what we are all looking forward to. Let me give you some examples from Scripture of the three different usages. Luke nineteen twelve. Jesus tells a parable about a nobleman who went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. Now, if kingdom only is talking about a place with a bunch of people in it, then somehow this nobleman's got to get that in his pocket. That's a, that's a tiny kingdom. Like, uh, what's that movie? Men in Black. It's like a whole universe inside a, a little ball and a marble, right? 
No, that's not what it's talking about here. It's using the term kingdom to mean he went to a king and that king gave him the authority to rule over a smaller portion of the kingdom. He received a kingdom. When we pray the Lord's Prayer and we say yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, we are talking about yours is the reign, yours is the kingdom. So that's that first usage of kingdom. In Matthew 21, 31, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. Now at this point, there was no literal physical kingdom to enter into. But here Jesus is saying, These sinners who are repentant, are getting into the kingdom ahead of you. Luke 16, 16, we've covered this verse. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John, meaning John the Baptist. And since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. Into where? 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 What kingdom? Where's the boundaries? Where's the land? Where's the throne? Where's? It's a spiritual kingdom. They're forcing their way into it through faith. What about the third usage of the word kingdom? Matthew 8, 11, I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. These are actual people, literal physical people. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're sitting at a table. Note here that, uh, by the way, kingdom of heaven is synonymous with kingdom of God. In Luke's gospel, we hear kingdom of God because Luke's a Gentile and has no problem using the word God. In Matthew's gospel, it's often kingdom of heaven, using heaven as a synonym for God because the Jews wanted to avoid breaking the commandment of using the name of the Lord your God in vain. So they avoid, avoided any usage of the word or the name for God. Revelation eleven fifteen. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord. The kingdom of our world is the one we live in now, the, the literal, physical, material kingdom of this world. But there is a time coming when the kingdom of our Lord, Jesus Christ, will replace the kingdom of this world. That sounds like a literal, physical kingdom. So what we have to do when we get to any passage that talks about kingdom is say, which way is the author using the word kingdom? The general sense, the spiritual sense, or the physical sense? Well, why would we need three usages for the same term? I think it's self-evident. There's a spiritual kingdom and a physical kingdom. You have a physical body inhabited by a spirit. There's two realms. God is a God of unity and will unify these realms. Jesus is 
fully God, who is spirit, and he's fully man. He's the great unifier of the two realms. We worship a God who, in the second person of the Trinity, is in a literal physical body. He's not, as one heresy called it, God in a bod. It's part of his being. Forever will be part of his being. It's not that the physical realm is evil and God has to stay away from the physical realm. This is the heresy of, of, of Gnosticism and Manichaeism. God created, and what did he say at the end of creation? It is good. And then he created woman and he said, it is very good. Say that with me, men. <laughs> and then he said, it's not good for man to be alone. And he created him a suitable helper. And then he said, it is very good. It is very good. It was after the fall that then creation was no longer good. It's a mixture of good and evil. And God will redeem us. And then he will redeem creation. Romans 8. All creation groans. That word groaning is labor pains. It's a woman in labor. She's groaning with the pain. But something good is going to come at the end of all the pain. Amen, Mr. and Mrs. Payton, who brought their new baby to church this morning. Congratulations. Little, uh, let's see, let's see, there's Maverick, Cruz, and Gunner. Congratulations. You guys are here fast. They don't mess around. They are in church just a few days later. And praise the Lord and his kindness and grace. They were telling me he was going to drive back from Denver, Mike drives truck, and thought he'd get home in plenty of time. And they said, you know what? Plane tickets are only 50 bucks. Why don't you hop on a plane? Glad he did, because three hours upon arriving, little baby Gunner was born. So praise God you got to be there and witness that miracle. But um, your wife understands groaning with labor pains, but something amazing will come from it. We're in this fallen kingdom and it's groaning, but a new kingdom is coming. And we look forward to the day. God reigns generally over both realms. So that's the first usage of the word kingdom. But there's a spiritual kingdom that God inaugurated when Jesus was resurrected. And the final physical kingdom will come when Jesus returns. So then, why did Jesus say that the kingdom of God is in you? Why did he say that? Let me, let me read to you from Ezekiel 36. You don't, it won't be on the screen. A prophecy from Ezekiel. Therefore, say to the house of Israel... Thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act. But for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned. 
in their midst. There's the word profane over and over and over. But the Lord will vindicate his name. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. You see the connection with the Great Commission we focused on this morning. I will make my name great among the nations. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, get this, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. A pliable, teachable, humble heart. I will put my spirit within you. That's the Holy Spirit. And cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. This is kingdom language. The rebellion will be over because you won't want to rebel anymore. That's the only way this is going to happen. Is he's going to have to change us from the inside out in the spiritual realm. So that in the physical realm we will obey. The spiritual comes first, then the physical. Because where did the rebellion happen? In the heart. That's where the rebellion started. By the time we see the fruits of rebellion, bad thoughts have been going on for a long time. See, we want to fix the material all the time. We want to fix our circumstances. We want to fix our our little kingdom, our little world around us. And Jesus comes in the flesh and everyone's expecting this physical kingdom and and he says, no, 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 no. First, we're going to fix the heart. So if we don't fix the heart, what will happen if he fixes the physical kingdom? We'll just mess it right back up again. The rebellion started in the heart, so the, the fix has to happen in the heart. So the kingdom is in you first. The kingdom is in you first. Yes, I I think we could look at the passage and maybe say Jesus was also saying, look, the kingdom is in your midst. I'm here. The heart changer is here. The king is here. But he enters the holy city, right, Palm Sunday, And they're expecting the physical, literal kingdom. And he doesn't deliver the physical, literal kingdom. So he lets them worship him as king. But he doesn't set up the literal kingdom immediately. So I take that to mean that when he says the kingdom is in you, he's talking about inside of you. Good and godly men would disagree with me right now. Especially the Ryrie Study Bible. (laughs) Make sure in the notes that it says it can't possibly mean inside of you. Yet that's the most normal reading of entas, inside. Jesus wouldn't say you need to clean the midst of the cup. That's the other place he uses the word entas. You need to clean the inside of the cup because that's where it's dirty. The kingdom is inside of you. That's where it's dirty and needs to be cleaned. 
So then, is Jesus teaching that there's no physical kingdom? No. So, well, why didn't he mention in this passage that the kingdom is inside of you and it's outside of you? Because everyone expected the outside, so he was focusing on the inside part. Just because he didn't mention the physical kingdom at this time doesn't mean that there isn't going to be one. We have an important method of interpreting Scripture where we let more clear passages explain less clear. Certainly, this is a less clear passage. That's why there's so many different interpretations. But does the rest of the Bible talk about a literal physical kingdom? Yes, it does. But the Jews were only expecting a literal physical kingdom and they needed to be corrected. And the best way to correct them in that moment is to say, you guys, it's not here or there. It doesn't come with observation. It's inside you. That's what makes sense to me. Where does the Bible talk about a literal kingdom? Well, most notably in Revelation. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who was the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Sorry about the small font here. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life, literally, and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This sounds literal to me. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. That sounds literal. When the thousand years are completed, like an actual thousand years, when they're completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. That sounds literal. But there are some who don't take this passage literally. And they're people we fellowship with. And we love. And we do gospel ministry with. You've got your millennialists and you have your ah-millennialists. Ah meaning not, like an atheist believes there's no God. Ah-millennialists believe there's no millennial kingdom. Well, what did Jesus teach? I love this passage. Uh, Acts wrote Luke. We're in Luke. Luke wrote Luke. Luke wrote Acts. Just before Jesus returned, they asked him, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel, a literal physical kingdom for Israel that the Old Testament promised? And God always keeps his promises. 
And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. He didn't say, you fools, you still think there's a physical kingdom? No, he says, not, not yet. Well, when? You don't get to know. But I told you a whole bunch of parables where I said, be ready, be ready, be prepared, be busy doing the king's work. He's coming back. He's going to set up the kingdom. So if, if, if you're new to all of this discussion, you're a newer Christian or you've never studied the end times, which we call eschatology, just a fancy word for study of the last things, there's two major camps. There's the millennialists, and those aren't millennials, okay? Um, there will be millennials in the millennium, but uh, I guess we'll all be millennials, if this is what is true. If there's no millennial kingdom, then we'll, we'll all be all, all millennials. But you know what? We'll all be worshiping the king. Right? This is not a doctrine we break fellowship over. This is not a doctrine you break fellowship over. I want to be clear about that. What does Country Oaks believe? If you go to our, our uh, statement of faith, it's going to say Jesus is returning. And it doesn't say anything about amillennialism or premillennialism or, you know, premill, amill, postmill, general mills. Uh, it just, we're just not going to go there, but we're going to have lively discussions in our Bible studies, in our Bible fellowships. And it seems to be the older you get, the more interested you are in the end times, um, which is completely understandable. You want to know how it all ends. But we're not going to get into disagreements over millennialism. Just for the record, the Southern Baptist Convention also doesn't take an official stance on the millennium. Lots of room for a diversity of opinions. Amen. Uh, I took a straw poll of the pastors and elders. They all lean pre-millennial, but that doesn't make it the official position of the church. And in fact, most of them, when I asked them, said, make sure you let them know that this is not the official position. I'm like, praise God for wise elders. They understand what divides people unnecessarily. And they wanted to be clear, we are not breaking fellowship over this. The important thing is, and this is where we end, not are you pre-mill, ah-mill, post-mill, Pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. Are you in the kingdom? You can know today that you are in the kingdom by placing your faith in Jesus Christ, the King, as Lord and Savior. Are you seeking first the kingdom? That's the other usage of the word kingdom. By submitting to Christ through the Holy Spirit guided by the Scriptures. That's seeking first the kingdom. And are you ready for Christ to return? The King to return by being busy, worshiping, and fulfilling the Great Commission. Those are the three important questions about the kingdom. I'll pray for you. You pray for me. Father, thank you for setting up a kingdom, for making us your people through faith in Jesus Christ, for allowing rebels back into your kingdom. 
for, your pardon that was purchased on the cross. May we be good kingdom subjects and bring glory to your name. May when, when you return, may you find us faithful, fulfilling the Great Commission. In Jesus' name I ask, amen. Amen. God bless you.